everyone remembers their 21st birthday. Okay, maybe not everyone remembers their 21st birthday. But for many Americans, it marks a significant rite of passage. Because once you're 21 in the States, you're legally allowed to buy alcohol. And based on 2021 data from Gallup, 61% of U.S. adults 21 and older say they imbibe. But our drinking habits at 21 can sometimes be very different once we graduate from college and our social drinking outings transition from the local house party or sporting event into work happy hours with colleagues and clients or first dates with someone you're really vibing with. Oftentimes, there comes a point when we're ready to graduate from those early drink orders of jello shots and 40-ounce bottles of cheap beer to more sophisticated options. But what does grown-up drinking look like? And how do we find the balance of feeling sophisticated and adult-like without sacrificing our own tastes and preferences? Start taking notes, because this is Grown-Up Stuff. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Grown Up Stuff, How to Adult. I am Molly, one of your faithful hosts, and I am joined by my designated driver on speed dial and co-host, Matt Stillo. And if you're listening to this episode on the day it's been released into the world, then a happy All Hallows' Eve to you. Matt, any big Halloween plans? As you very well know, I enjoy living my life at the intersection of low effort, high impact. So every year I do Donnie Darko, really simple. It's a skeleton onesie with a sweater over it because it gets cold in New York. So been that for like eight years in a row. But, you know, for the people who do love it, more power to you. Are you one of those people? I actually hate the smell of uh, face paint and like the rubber masks that people wear on Halloween. Like there's something of triggering about it for me that I just do not like. What is a hollow, by the way? Do we even know what that is? Yeah, great question. The noun of a hollow means a saint or holy person, and the verb is to make holy or set apart for holy use, according to Merriam-Webster. So, and Halloween is the eve of All Saints Day, so which is November 1st. Hence, All Hallows Eve, so the eve of All Saints Day. You are welcome. Ah, yeah, yeah. See, the only real thing that I know about Halloween is that it's one of the largest drinking holidays of the year. This is very true. <laughs> it's one of the drunkest days of the year. Um, and that is a perfect segue because, Matt, in this episode, we are going to learn how to elevate our drinking habits and feel more like adults while we're doing it. I am really looking forward to hearing what our guest has to share about this topic. I truly am so excited. We are joined by a very special guest today, Ethan Fixell. Ethan is a certified Cicerone, a certified specialist of spirits, and a certified specialist of wine. And he has taught beer, wine, and spirits classes at the Astor Center, the Brooklyn Kitchen, and NYC Wine Company. Ethan has also written about beer, wine, spirits, and coffee for publications like, oh my God, do I have to list all of these? Food and Wine, (laughs) Wine Enthusiast, Esquire, Vanity Fair, Men's Journal, Tasting Table, Thrillist, Travel and Leisure, Vice, and many, many more. But most importantly, I do feel like it is my journalistic obligation to identify that Ethan is also our our boss. boss. (laughs) These are facts. Ethan, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you here on Grown Up Stuff, How to Adult. But first, we just read off your bio. What is, and I 
forgive me, I'm probably going to butcher it. What is a certified Cicerone? Chicharone? No, you did better than Stillo. That was, <laughs> Matt, that was Chicharone? Chicharone. It sounds like a pork rind. Look, you can be certified in pork rinds. You could. I'm not. I wish I was certified in pork rinds. I am a certified Cicerone, which is sort of like a beer sommelier, I oh, guess you could say. Interesting. Yeah. But I'm also a certified specialist of wine and a certified specialist of spirits, thanks to the Society of Wine Educators. So I have three certifications, which my mother is very proud of. She should be. That's super impressive. Now, what is the difference between being a certified specialist of wine and being a sommelier? I always struggle with this word. Sommelier. Sommelier. Thank you, Matt. Cicerone is a service industry certification, right? So if you are a certified Cicerone, that means that you can actually work in a restaurant or a bar and help serve beer. That is similar to a sommelier, a wine service expert. There are also other types of experts, like the Society of Wine Educators that I got my wine and spirit certifications through. Those are for education and not for service. There's different tracks, but basically, you know, some are for service, some are for teaching people. Got it. So you still know a ton, but you're not serving the wine necessarily, but you are doing that for the beer. I'm working with you guys. I'm currently not <laughs> serving any beer professionally, but I'm, I did purchase beer for a large restaurant group for a year or two. Um, but most of my background is in writing. So I was a journalist for uh, about three, four years full time. Amazing. And I will say, on a number of outings together as a group, you have given excellent education in, in spirits. And, and you've done a couple of like at home tastings with some of us. Like, that was fun. So I've learned a ton. Yeah. And your alcohol and spirit collection at home is impressive. Very impressive. <laughs> I have a lot. It's super grown up. It is. That's why I'm on grown-up stuff. I get all that stuff because I wrote. Most of my collection is from publicists and from the brands themselves. I don't spend all of my money that I make at iHeart on booze. <laughs> <laughs> this brings us to a great point, which is why might one want to drink like an adult? You know, like I go to the bar, I've got my IPA that I like, you know, I enjoy Malbec wine, but there's a deeper world to it than that. So why might one want to know a little bit more about alcohol? I think it's really important to know what you like, first and foremost, so that you don't waste your money. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people go to a restaurant or they go to a liquor store and they don't know where to start. I think that people are discouraged from wanting to drink anything interesting because they are overwhelmed by all the options. So I think having a little bit of a baseline of understanding of, you know, what all this stuff is and what the differences are is actually really helpful and uh, will alleviate some pain. <laughs> yeah, in, in your writing, you kind of talk about this sort of cultural generational shift that's been going on in, in the last, you know, 20 years or so uh, about what's happening in the alcohol industry. Could you go into that a little bit for the audience? Well, I think that there's a really nice thing happening right now, which is that people are caring a little bit more about what they drink and why they drink it and how they drink it. So, you know, I remember going to college and drinking nothing but Natty Light and the occasional yingling on a special occasion. <laughs> but I think more and more young people are being more deliberate with their drinking choices. You know, they're not looking to go out and get wasted. And adults, too, like us. <laughs> you know, as you get older, you don't want that hangover. You want to be able to enjoy one or two drinks and have them count. And so I think that that shift is happening quite a bit. I think people are drinking less, but I think people are drinking with more purpose, which I think is a nice thing. 
Yeah, Matt and I also talked about, like, you know, there's this whole sober culture movement kind of happening, Mm -hmm. which we'll get into a little bit more. But you said a really interesting point about people are being more deliberate and people don't want to waste their money on things that they're not going to enjoy, which I have a quick follow-up question. Let's say you tried something new at a bar and you're like, oh, I'm going to give this a shot and you hate it. What is the appropriate, like, adult bar protocol do you just finish it? Do you just like leave it and you're like, that's money wasted? Or do you tell the bartender like, hey, I'm so sorry, I don't like this? I think it really depends on where you are and what you're drinking. If you go to like a dingy kind of hole in the wall dive bar and you order a Budweiser and you say, wow, this is terrible. It, this, <laughs> this is not what I like. You just ordered a Budweiser at a dive bar. That's what you're drinking, man. Enjoy it. Fair. That's your choice. If you go to a really nice cocktail bar in New York City and you pay $22 for a cocktail right. and you find it literally undrinkable, you should tell your server that you're having a tough time with it very politely and say, I'm really sorry. This is just not what I expected. It's not for me. Would you mind if I trade this in for something else? And that's totally appropriate, but it's all in the delivery and uh, the context in which you're asking for that. That makes sense. The other thing that you mentioned in your writing is that we're diving into like a, a culture of like cross drinking. Mm-hmm. So whereas it seems like maybe people were sticking to the, what they loved beforehand and now kind of people are trying to to get into, you know, lots of different types of spirits. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think people have wisened up. We no longer believe the old adage that beer before liquor, never been sicker, all that sort of stuff. And we could talk about that, hangovers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of things that are myths about hangovers, but I think ultimately people are drinking beer, wine, and spirits equally because they understand that each serves a different purpose. And so I personally, I enjoy all three of those categories almost equally, I would say, Mm. because I think that there's a time and a place for all of them. And I think that with so much information being traded on a daily basis with the internet, with social media, we can see and we're exposed to so much more. It's the same with food, right? Mm -hmm. People eat much broader variations of food today than in the 1950s when it was like peas and (laughs) mashed potatoes and roast beef on the dinner table. Yeah, exactly. So we have a lot more variety at our fingertips. And I think people are taking advantage of that. And that's great. Yeah, exactly. We've got a lot more variety now. And you'd mentioned people can kind of go into a restaurant, into a bar, into a spirit shop and be overwhelmed by the amount of choices. So how do we even start to go about discovering what it is that we like? I think you got to start simply. You kind of have to take it category by category, beer, wine, spirits. Start by finding one or two things that you really like in each category and using that as your anchor point. It can help you talk to an expert about what you like and why you like that particular beverage. Alcohol is too expensive these days not to actually enjoy what you're drinking. The New York Times recently reported that some bars in New York have increased the price of their drinks by $1 each to keep up with rising operating costs. And... It's already not uncommon to see cocktail prices in the $15 to $20 range in many major cities like L.A., New York, and Chicago. So while it's important to try new things, it's also important to identify what you like in that journey so that you're not wasting your hard-earned money on a drink you're struggling to finish. Let's talk about palate training. What is it? How can we use it to kind of refine our tastes? 
does it ever change when it comes to alcohol? Like, for example, like we might not have liked Brussels sprouts and now I love Brussels sprouts. Like, can it change with alcohol or at this point in our life when we actually start drinking alcohol, is it kind of set in stone? Yeah, our tastes evolve and I think we get, you know, a little bit deadened to certain flavors. And so we are able to tolerate spicier or more acidic or more bitter things as we get older. Interesting. But the way to train your palate as an adult, as a grown-up, as we say, <laughs> is to just taste a lot of different things. There are some training kits that you can actually purchase. I believe Siebel makes a sensory kit where you can actually nose all these different aromas huh. and also taste all these different flavors. And you kind of start to develop a recognition for these specific flavors. I mean, there's no way that anyone who's ever tasting wine and says, ah, oh, it's reminiscent of elderberry <laughs> knows what the hell that is unless they've had a freaking elderberry. That's like the wood thing. Like, oh, it tastes like it's very oaky. I'm like, who the fuck is chewing on a, like a twig <laughs> of oak here? Well, that's the thing, though. If you start tasting enough wine or enough whiskey, you really, you know, eventually develop a sense for what oak tastes like okay. and what it smells like. It really comes down to repetition and exposure to these different flavor components. And you can take a shortcut through these sensory kits, which I really recommend if you want to get serious about it. Oh, that's so cool. As Ethan points out, our taste buds change and evolve as we age. For example, according to research conducted by experts from the Monell Chemical Senses Center, we're born with a sweet tooth. But as we get older, our sense of taste begins to dull and our taste buds no longer regenerate. This changes the way we experience flavors that once seemed so sharp to us when we were younger. The National Institute on Aging recommends adding color and texture to your food and drinks as you start to lose that sense of taste to make things more interesting. They also recommend to introduce bold spices and flavors like mustard, garlic, ginger, and hot peppers. And as Ethan mentioned, all is not lost. We can train our palates to recognize certain flavors better. In addition to these palate training kits, some experts recommend swirling a glass of wine before you sniff it to release the aromas. Others recommend visiting spice shops and letting your nose take in all of the different smells. Last year, Elena and I went to Napa Valley uh, and we had lots of expensive wine. We had lots of not so expensive wine and learned that they're all more or less, you know, generally speaking, made the same. <laughs> and to my surprise, mm. one of my favorite wines that I had was like a relatively inexpensive bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon. And it led me to more or less agree with that adage that the best wine is the wine that you like. And I'm curious to hear what you make of this sentiment. I will get behind that statement, the best wine is the wine that you like, with a giant asterisk <laughs> at the end of it. Here we because, go. Because, look, well, I think you guys will understand what I'm saying here, but there is such a thing as objective quality when it comes to wine. Mm -hmm. Okay, there are ingredients that are better, right? There are grapes that are grown more organically, picked at the right time or the wrong time or a worse time, let's say. <laughs> but case in point, I went to a very commercial winery in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Oh, I've heard good things about that area. Oh, my God. Pinot Noir in the United States. That's where you go. Oh, good to know. Absolutely. So I went to this giant place that is producing a tremendous amount of wine. And because of that, they have to harvest the grapes 
mechanically. And what that means is that they're using these big machines to cut down all of the vines at once or all of the grapes at once. And with the grapes, they are getting bugs, plants, other plants. Mm. They're getting dead birds. Like, I mean, absolutely anything. Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm serious, though, that, you know, the larger the the wine operation, the less care goes into the picking process or the fermenting Mm -hmm. or the barreling. So, like, there are changes in quality as you go up the price ladder. But I will say that ultimately, if you are not enjoying or getting joy out of a $50 bottle or any more joy out of that $50 bottle than you are out of the $10 bottle, then ultimately, I, I would argue, yeah, just stick with the $10 bottle. But at the same time, if you enjoy your two buck chuck, right? Thank you. Go for it. Enjoy it. You're just going to feel like crap tomorrow. (laughs) Oh, wait. Okay. I want to get to that later. Um, But now we're talking about choosing the right wine. Is it bad that I choose my wine based on how intriguing I find the label to be? (laughs) No, I wouldn't say that's bad. I like a pretty label. Well, is that the sole factor that you're using? I mean, I'll be like, oh, I think I want a Malbec. That sounds nice. And then I choose based on the label. Yes. And price. See, there you go. You just said something very sophisticated and very grown up. (gasps) I did? You're thinking about the variety. Okay. You're thinking about potentially the region from which the wine is grown. Let's say you're saying, okay, well, I want a Malbec, but I, I don't want Argentinian Malbec. I want French Malbec, right? So there's a difference there. And then you can look at the label. And then I do think that the label is a small percentage or a portion of what you can make your decision on. But look, I mean, if you want to really dive into it, I would say like, if a label is really intricately done and over the top, and it seems like the marketing is the sole thing that the winery is focusing on or the primary thing, that could be also maybe not a great thing because maybe they're paying more attention to the marketing than the wine. But overall, I would say, yes, that is a fair way to influence your decision. It just shouldn't be the sole reason you choose a bottle of wine. We'll be right back with more grown-up stuff, how to adult after a quick break. And we're back with more grown-up stuff, how to adults. So we've talked a bit about wine at this point. I want to move on to spirits, as you would call it, Ethan. Sure. Is it okay that I prefer to drink liquor or spirits in a cocktail and not drink it by itself? Does that mean I don't actually enjoy that particular alcohol? Or No. Like, should I always be able to just drink it plain? <laughs> we would call it neat in the spirits world. Okay. But it's okay to drink in a cocktail. I think it just depends on what you're putting into the cocktail. So there are certain spirits that are meant to be enjoyed neat. They are, let's say, I don't know, over the $100 price point, and they are artisanal products. Okay. And the spirit maker or the distiller is trying to make something very, very unique. And that is not necessarily meant to be enjoyed in a cocktail. But I will say that it is a little bit of a um, an acquired taste, a lot of these things. And so you have to kind of explore enough of it to be able to make an informed decision and really truly understand what you're getting into. It's palate training. It is. It's part of the training process, right? We want to get into some of the basics about the alcohols themselves. So what are some of the most important things that we should know about beer? You know, people talk about like, you know, what's the difference between a lager and an ale? Enlighten us. Well, a lager and an ale, that's a pretty straightforward one. That has to do with the yeast. Mm -hmm. So there are 
largely two strains of, in general, beer yeast. An ale yeast, it likes to ferment at a warmer temperature and it's top fermenting. And the lager yeast actually ferments at a cooler temperature, and that is bottom fermenting. So it sits at the bottom of the tank. So actually, these organisms operate better optimally in different conditions. And because of that, you get different flavor components in the beer. Mm -hmm. So an ale fermented warmer is going to have fruitier esters to it. It's going to have a little bit more flavor, a little bit fuller bodied. A lager is going to be cleaner, crisper because of that cold fermentation. That's the two general larger categories of, of all types of beer, lager and ale. Most people's understanding of, you know, generic beer, like on The Simpsons, Duff's beer, uh, <laughs> would be like a lager, your regular American macro lager. Okay. This is your Budweiser, your Coors, all that stuff. Those are made with adjuncts like corn and rice. What you really want to do is try to find beers that are a little bit more pure than that and are just made from malt, right? So you have malt water, yeast, and hops. Those are the real four key ingredients for beer. And so seek out some lagers or some pilsners, which is a style of lager, that are made by a craft brewery or are made by you know more artisanal operation or even a macro brewery. I mean, Anheuser-Busch does have some lagers and pilsners in some of their craft portfolio that, that are pretty solid. But find something that's a little bit more traditional when it comes to lager and pilsner and see what you like experiment, taste. I mean, those are very similar types of beers because they're all very clean and crisp. And then on the ale side, a lot of people always start with IPA. I love an IPA. IPA is great, but it's a broad category. India pale ales were created out of necessity. The hops were meant to preserve the beer as it traveled across the sea. And as they made their way deeper into American culture, it became about bitterness and about flavor, You know, another dimension that they can add to these ales. So I would say kind of play with that, go to Beer Advocate, go to Rate Beer, go to Untapped, and look at the top-ranked beers in each category, and try to seek those out and learn more about what they represent. So when you go to like a craft brewery and you kind of like look at their list, a lot of times you'll see ciders on there. And so like, is, which brings up the question, like, is cider actually a beer or is it really just like a wine in disguise? Cider is not beer or wine. Cider is cider. It's its own category. And cider is basically the exact same thing as wine or beer. All three things are just fermented beverages, but they are each their own category because they are made from specific ingredients. Wine is made from grapes, must be made from grapes. Beer must be made from grain. And cider must be made from apples or fruit. You know, we can make it from pears as well. <laughs> so yeah, cider is its own thing. And dry cider traditional cider is fantastic. So we want to get into wine now. And so same thing. So what are some basic things that our audience should know about wine and, and where they should start if they're getting into drinking wine? Great question. My number one suggestion is to not assume that varieties are everything, mm -hmm. right? The grape is not everything. So some people say, oh, I don't drink Chardonnay. Oh, I don't drink Cabernet or Merlot. I mean, Sideways, that whole thing with the movie Sideways that ruined Merlot. <laughs> if they want to drink Merlot, we're drinking Merlot. No, if anybody orders Merlot, I'm leaving. I am not drinking any fucking Merlot! Okay, okay, relax, Miles. The problem is that a grape is only part of the equation. The rest of the equation is who is making the wine and where are they growing the grapes? Mm -hmm. Because, for example, a Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand 
is going to taste completely different than a classic French white Bordeaux. So it's really all about where the wine is from. I would say start to learn a little bit more about wine regions rather than just grapes. And I'm sick of people saying that they don't like Chardonnay because they've had over-oaked, you know, gnarly, popcorn, buttery Chardonnay from the United States when Burgundy is making world-class, unbelievable Chardonnay and has been for centuries. Wine is made all over the world. There are vineyards in France, Italy, Australia, Portugal, South Africa, and even Wisconsin. But the flavors of the grapes and the taste of the wine are greatly impacted by things like climate, sun exposure, topography, and soil composition, all of which vary greatly by region, which is why certain regions are known better for very specific varietals. For example, warmer climates typically yield grapes with higher sugar content, which may result in sweeter wines. Ethan has a few recommendations on the best regions to find certain varietals. When it comes to Malbec, France is a very classic representation. Or if you're looking for a bigger, bolder Malbec, check out the ones from Argentina. For a Pinot Noir, Burgundy, they're a very classic representation. But they can also be pretty pricey. The Willamette Valley in Oregon also has some great Pinot Noirs. For Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot, Bordeaux is the classic here. But you can also get some nice ones from Napa Valley, California, If you're a rosé fan, which Ethan wants me to make sure, I stipulate that this is not a variety, but a style of wine. The gold standard is typically found from Provence, France. Pinot Grigios? Italy only. Do not drink a Pinot Grigio from anywhere else. Sauvignon Blanc? Sancerre or White Bordeaux is the classic. But New Zealand's also another great place to get a Sauvignon Blanc from. It's fresh, it's bright, it's zippy, it has refreshing citrus and grassy flavors. The Burgundy region is classic for Chardonnay. It's under-oaked, it has an emphasis on fruit flavors and yeast, but Central California can be oakier, but with a much richer flavor. Oftentimes, when you go visit a friend who enjoys wine, you'll see a bottle of white wine chilling in their fridge. And that feels like the right thing to do. And then sometimes you'll go to another friend's house and they're chilling a bottle of red wine. And that just feels wrong to me. So, I mean, is it wrong to chill red wine? Well, it depends on what kind of red wine we're talking about. You could give a little chill to some Beaujolais Nouveau. You could actually give certain red wines a chill. But largely speaking, you know, red wine is best served a little bit below room temperature, just a, a hair. Oh. And white wine is, is generally speaking, best served a little bit below that, right? So a little cooler. Mm. But we do want to, again, think about what is the wine? What is the ABV, the alcohol by volume? Is there age on this wine? What is the variety, the region? That is going to contribute to the service temperature. Mm -hmm. But largely speaking, if I were to generalize for every wine out there, which any sommelier will cringe at this statement, you generally want to serve wine just a little bit below room temperature. That's really interesting. So let's talk about decanting, aerating. I feel like they're sort of similar, but they're different. Are they necessary? When should we do them? When is it like, eh, you could just pop the cork and let it sit? Yeah. Well, not all wine is meant to be aged. That's a huge flag I want to kind of make. The vast majority of wine, in fact, I'd say probably 90% of wine that's produced and sold is not meant to be aged. It is meant Hmm. to be enjoyed immediately. 
It does not necessarily need to be aerated, and it certainly doesn't need to be decanted because it is not going to benefit from the introduction of oxygen to the wine. It is a fresh wine that is, you know, there's a great scene in The Jerk. It's the best thing ever because he goes out to dinner and he's got all this money to spend. He's really upset with the waiter because they are serving him all of these older vintages. Would Monsieur care for another bottle of the Chateau Latou? Uh, yes, but no more 1966. Let's splurge. Bring us some fresh wine, the freshest you've got this year. No more of this old stuff. But the irony of that joke is that a lot of quote-unquote fresh wine, new wines are fantastic. You just want to drink it right out of the bottle. And it has a twist cap, probably. Mm. And that's totally cool, too. The small percentage of wines in the world that are with cork top and are meant to be aged, we're talking about like fine Burgundy, fine Bordeaux, you know, Rioja, wines from the great regions of the world, even your Napa Cab, Matt, those are, are meant to go for a long time because there is enough acid, enough tannin, enough alcohol for the wine to survive a long time in the bottle. And so you want to, when you open that wine, you want to give it a chance to breathe. You want to introduce some oxygen when you finally open it because it hasn't interacted much with oxygen other than the little that's coming through the uh, cork in a micro level for a very long time. So you mentioned, you know, if it's a wine, it has to be made with grapes. If it's a beer, it has to be made with grains. But a lot of spirits are made with grains. So what exactly makes spirits different? What makes them spirity? Spirits is an interesting category because unlike wine and beer, you know, it's a lot broader of a category. Because mm. actually within it, there are subcategories. You've got vodka, whiskey, rum, brandy, etc. Brandy, by the way, is distilled wine, mm. right? So it starts as wine and becomes a spirit. Spirits in general are all distilled. So they all, like beer, wine, and cider, must be fermented first. Hmm. And then what you're going to do is you're going to concentrate the alcohol. You're going to distill it. You're going to separate the water from the alcohol so that you have a much more intense beverage. I never really understood that that's what distilling means. That's interesting. Yes. And so depending on what the base of your ferment is, that's going to determine the subcategory of the spirit. So whiskey must be made from grain, brandy from grapes, rum from sugarcane. And then vodka can pretty much be made from anything because the key to vodka is that it's supposed to be an odorless, flavorless spirit. It is a pure distillation. So it can be made from any of those things I just named. And what about gin? Gin is, is basically vodka with an infusion of botanicals, more or less. I always wanted to know that. With juniper, juniper berries. Yeah. That's right. Juniper berries at the, at the core of that botanical list. I also re was recently in London, and I found out that what makes a London dry gin is that they used to make it with like fruits, but in the olden times, olden days, uh, it was very, <laughs> you, there was no refrigerator. So often their fruit would come over imported and, and be rotting. And it's really gross to make an alcohol with rotting fruit. And so what they would do is they would dry the fruits before they would even get there, and then they would make alcohol from those dried fruits or, or dried botanicals. And that's why we get London dry gin. And now the student becomes the teacher. <laughs> Look at you. One question that comes up a lot is, you know, scotch, rye, bourbon, whiskey, like, isn't it all the same thing? What differentiates these kind of like sub varieties? Yeah, this is all about place, right? Region. Mm -hmm. Scotch whiskey is whiskey that's made in Scotland. I knew Irish that one. Irish whiskey in mm -hmm. Ireland. Yeah, you knew that mm -hmm. one. Bourbon, Kentucky. <laughs> 
Well, see, you didn't know that one. Oh, fuck. Because bourbon can actually be produced anywhere in the United States. Oh, But it does okay. have to be in the United States. Okay. Kentucky just happens to be the birthplace and the largest producer of bourbon. But bourbon, and then you have within American whiskey, you have all these subcategories, right? Bourbon must be 51% or more corn. Rye whiskey is the same as bourbon, except it must be 51% or more rye grain hmm. huh. in the bill. Yeah, but I also think it goes back to like the way that you're going to figure out what you like is by repetition, by trying all these things. You know, if, who knows if you like bourbon better than rye until you try them. Yeah, I think if I had to summarize all these lessons into like three points, taste a lot of things, think more about where the spirit is coming from, and drink what you like, but consider quality. I love that. But here's one adult situation that we really want to talk about. How does one determine the most appropriate beverage to order for any given day, place, time, event? I think the number one thing, again, is to look at where you are. Everything is context, right? If you're at a wedding on a vineyard, you're probably going to want to try the wine and see what the wines are like. That tracks. Yeah. You know, if you are in Japan, you might want to try sake. I think it really ultimately comes down to where you are and what's available. Uh, going back to that dive bar, usually I drink Budweiser or I drink a uh, you know a macro brew when I'm at a very kind of I don't know divey bar that that doesn't really seem to make great cocktails. So don't expect to get you know a certain level of of quality from certain venues if it's pretty clear that they only have you know two ingredients on their bar. Uh, and they don't look like, and one of them is Clorox, you know, like there's, there's definitely, um, some, some key indicators to point you in the right direction, but just think about where you are and think about what the place that you're at would best be able to serve you. I want to run through some terms that we hear a lot at bars and that we may want to use when we're ordering to make us sound more in the know, you know, more grown up. Okay. Let's start with on the rocks. On the rocks is on ice. Okay. And shaken? Shaken means to be put into a shaker and uh, not stirred, which would be a little gentler. So you'd get a little bit more ice influence in the cocktail when it's shaken. Okay. And then stirred is just gentler, but would you serve it over ice still? I guess it depends, right? It depends on the cocktail. So if you're ordering a martini or a Manhattan and there's no ice in it after, you would say, I'll have it up. Okay. So it's the same thing as like straight up like or neat? Up means like in a martini glass. Neat would be with no ice, not shaken, not stirred, nothing. Just the exact spirit from the bottle into your glass. Oh, okay, got it. So up would still imply that like you might have shaken, you might have stirred, but there's nothing else in the glass Correct. once they pour it. Okay. Twist. A twist is a little garnish, often lime or lemon. Okay. Now, I've heard this term referred in different ways. So this is a tricky one. And... Any context that you can give us for the different ways would be helpful. Dirty. Dirty would be with the addition of olive juice. It's real real naughty in your martini. One of my favorite drinks is a dirty Shirley, though. Oh, that sounds disgusting. No. I'm off. I'm, it's I'm just, leaving this show. It's a Shirley Temple <laughs> with alcohol in it, and they call it a dirty Shirley. Oh, Dirty can also mean, I guess, with the influence of alcohol. But, you know, if you're already ordering an alcoholic beverage, it would be redundant to call it dirty. So I guess my thought was that they were putting olive juice in your grenadine and ginger ale and I was (laughs) gagging in my mouth. Hideous. I agree with you on that. Um, Let's jump to handling our alcohol. Yep. I feel like it's a marathon and I want to carb load before I go out 
and join friends for for drinks. Is it true that if I eat an entire pasta meal or a loaf of bread that I'm suiting up for better success in terms of how I feel? I wouldn't say that you necessarily have to eat an entire loaf of bread. Nope, I want the whole loaf. (laughs) Well, that's on you. That part is on you. But yes, having a little bit in your stomach is absolutely going to help absorb the alcohol. I always recommend eating with alcohol and never just drinking without any food. That is a recipe for disaster. It's not like you need to eat more than usual, but you need to eat something with your booze. Carbs will absolutely soak up a little bit more of that alcohol and will uh, allow you to kind of drink a little bit more. You mentioned up top the whole adage, beer before liquor, never been sicker, liquor than beer, you're in the clear. Is there any truth to that at all? And if so, like, where does wine fit into that equation? Yeah, I mean, drinking order is kind of a myth. Wow, this is blowing my mind. Yeah, well, that's what I'm here to do. I do want to clarify, though, that, you know, if you are going to switch between beer, wine, spirits, back and forth, all over the place, what ends up happening is it becomes very hard to track how much alcohol you've had. Um. And in addition, your sugar levels are going to be all over the place. So I do think that there is some a kernel of truth to that statement. But that's a really good point is like we can go out and... It's really easy, especially like at things like weddings, to lose track of just how much you've been drinking, even if you don't intend to get sloshed. Do you have recommendations for ways to kind of avoid those accidental overindulgences? Like, do you recommend doing water after every drink or anything like that? Absolutely. And I think you nailed it. I think the key is to have a full glass of water after each drink. And to give yourself a little bit of time in between. You can literally mix up and match any type of liquor, alcohol, whatever it is, throughout the whole night. As long as you're spacing them out by, you know, 30 minutes, an hour, and drinking full glass of water in between. That's not going to, you know, affect you if you're moving around the uh, the beverage map. It's, it's all about what you do in between that matters. And then I would say, before you go to bed, very important that you have more water. Water is good and water is your friend. It's super important to drink lots of water if you're going to have multiple drinks in a night. Additionally, the Journal of Clinical Medicine reported that social drinkers who have higher dietary intake of zinc and B vitamins also experience less severe hangovers the next morning. Hangovers and the general embarrassment of drinking too much are reason enough not to drink alcohol at all. And there are a lot of people adopting sober lifestyles that still involve going out to the bars and enjoying non-alcoholic or de-alcoholized beverages. According to reporting by Forbes, non- and low-alcoholic beverage sales grew by more than 7% in 2022 and surpassed $11 billion, that's billion with a B, in value. Ethan also has thoughts on the best ways to be a sophisticated drinker when you're not drinking alcohol. Last thing I want to talk about here is that there is a driving trend right now to more sober living. And we're seeing entire mocktail menus at bars now, too. Um, Entire bars. Entire bars dedicated to it. Yeah, absolutely. Ah, Those people are evil. (laughs) Even at my craft brewery in my neighborhood, they now have like a ton of really great non-alcoholic beers. I've seen non-alcoholic wines. How can we kind of make the best choices on those? Do you have any recommendations about how to mocktail like an adult or how to, you know, sober drinking like an adult? Yeah, a couple things. First of all, de-alcoholized beverages are completely different than beverages that 
never had alcohol in them at all. Mm. The reason that I recommend de-alcoholized beverages, for example, de-alcoholized beer or cider, if you drink a de-alcoholized cider, you're still going to have the yeast component there, the flavor, the complexity that the yeast gives to the beverage. Whereas if you drink cider that has never had yeast introduced to it, uh, you're drinking apple juice. I do like apple juice. (laughs) I mean, listen, you're welcome to have an apple juice, but don't call it cider. I would say that that is one big component. The second thing is the quality of ingredients and the people who are making it, do they seem to put some thought into the botanicals or the herbal ingredients or the fruits or the syrups that they're using? Or does it seem like it was cheaply put together and kind of offhand, like, oh, yeah, this is just for those people who don't want to drink. Yeah, whatever. We don't care. Uh, so, uh, you know, thinking about, like, where it's coming from and, and how it's being crafted is really important. And then, you know, just go for ingredients that appeal to you. Great advice. Great advice. Yeah. And like, don't get uh, hoodwinked by somebody being like, oh, this is our virgin screwdriver when it's really just a glass of Tropicana. That's right. (laughs) That's right. I would say that that is a place you should never go to again, depending on what they charge you. True. Very true. If they're charging you screwdriver prices, they are there to (laughs) screwdrive you out of that business. Uh, Love a pun. Love a pun. I think that's a great place to to end it. That's all the time we have for today. Ethan, thank you so much for for joining Molly and I today uh, as we navigate the world of drinking like an adult. Uh, and I would say goodbye for now, but we've got uh, a meeting coming up in about a half an hour. So I guess <laughs> we'll see you then. We never say goodbye to you. <laughs> I'll see you guys there. Thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Ethan. Truly lessons to live by. And I will continue to eat a whole lasagna before I go out to the bar with my friends. It hasn't failed me yet. But here's what else I've learned from our conversation with Ethan. There's a time and a place where it's appropriate to trade in your drink for something else. You can always train your palate and there are even kits that you can buy to help. But ultimately, it's super important to be open to trying new things in the process of training your palate and finding what you like. Gin and vodka are the same thing, basically. But gin is made with botanicals, juniper berries being at the center of those botanicals. Not all wine needs to breathe. If it's got a cork, sure, give it a second. But a lot of wines that are those twist-off caps now are not meant to be aged and are meant to be enjoyed fresh. Taste a lot of things, think about where the spirit is coming from, and drink what you like. It always, always, always helps to have something in your stomach prior to drinking to avoid your alcohol getting the best of you. Drinking order is a myth. It's more important to keep track of how much you're drinking and that you're giving yourself more time in between drinks. Mocktails and non-alcoholic drinks can be a nice way to participate in drinking culture while staying sober. And just like with alcoholic beverages, it's all about quality of ingredients and the thought going into the final product. That's it for this episode. Matt, what kind of grown-up stuff are we unpacking next? Well, first, we're going to take a little break and come back to you in three weeks, right before Thanksgiving on November 21st, with a discussion of how to navigate family dynamics, especially when we're all huddled around the holiday table. Oh, boy. And a lot of dynamics it is to navigate. Let me tell you, (laughs) there might be some crying, there might be some screaming, and that's just how I feel about, you know, green bean casserole. Well, hopefully this year will be the first year that it ends in peace, Molly. Maybe... Maybe a little hope this year. We'll find out (laughs) on Grown Up Stuff, How to Adult. And remember, you might not be graded in life, but it never hurts to do your homework. 
This is a production from Ruby Studios from iHeartMedia. Our executive producers are Molly Sosha and Matt Stillo. This episode was engineered by Matt Stillo and written by Molly Sosha. This episode was fact checked by Caspi Bias. Additional editing by Sierra Spreen. We want to thank our teammates at Ruby Studios, including Ethan Fixell, Rachel Swan Krasnoff, Amber Smith, Deborah Garrett, and Andy Kelly. 